News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. This morning's mystery that we're going to be talking about, it's an oldie, but it's a goodie. Have you ever heard of the lost colony of Roanoke? It has puzzled historians for hundreds of years. Like even today, this mystery endures along with the people who are still trying to solve it. So why does it still hold so much interest? Well, let's ask Andrew Lawler. Andrew is the author of The Secret Token, Myth, Obsession, and the Search for the Lost Colony of Roanoke. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. I always love to talk about the lost colony, so it's a pleasure. (laughs) Why? Why do you love talking about this so much? Because I don't know any other historical mystery that is so fascinating and that is obsessed so many people for so many centuries. Uh, you know, this was the first attempt by the English to settle the New World, and it really went wrong. Uh, in the end, as you mentioned, uh, more than 100 men, women, and children simply vanished. We don't know what happened to them, and that has been the big question uh, ever since the time of Queen Elizabeth. What happened to these people? So what have you found? Like, what clues can we possibly find hundreds of years later? Well, I'm not going to give it all away just in one (laughs) sentence. Are you kidding? No one would want to read the book. Uh, No, but seriously, uh, what's happened in the past decade is that archaeologists have gotten involved. So since the the colonists disappeared in 1587, so let's just set the stage a bit. Queen Elizabeth was was in charge of Britain, uh, in charge of England, and they wanted to settle uh, somewhere in the New World because Spain and France were getting all the gold and silver and England wanted a piece of that pie. So Sir Walter Raleigh, who was one of her courtiers, uh, got some money together, sent some ships over uh, to do a reconnaissance mission. They came back and said, hey, this coast of North Carolina looks good. It's a great place as a pirating base where we can maybe sneak out and steal a Spanish galleon or two, and uh, and there might be some gold and silver we can find uh, inland. Uh, So they sent uh, a large contingent of of, uh, 100 or so men uh, a couple of years later, in order to settle and to establish a, a site there. And then things went bad. They ran out of food, and they had to go back to England. Uh, and you would have thought that was that would be the end of things. Mm-hmm. It didn't end well. Um, although nobody died. Uh, everybody got back to England, but there wasn't much money to be had. But uh, Sir Walter Raleigh and uh, one of his uh, good buddies, John White, uh, decided that they wanted to try again. So they pulled together more than 100 men, women, and children. And these were people mainly from London. They were basically people fed up with a high cost of living in London, wanted to try you know, new life, get some land. They arrived in 1587. Uh, they planted themselves at the, the old fort that had been built by the previous group. And John White then said, you know, we really need more supplies. Uh, we don't have time to plant corn. We've got to get more food. I'm going to go back to England, get more food, get more colonists, more supplies. I'll be back by Easter, um, which was about six months away. So he sailed away, but John White had bad luck. When he got back to England, it turned out that the Spanish were sending an armada against England. And Queen Elizabeth said, no ship is leaving England until we have dealt with this problem. And when John White finally was able to get back to the New World where his daughter and his granddaughter, Virginia Dare, were living, there was no one there. The fort was empty. It was abandoned. And so all we've had for the past few hundred years is these few historical accounts of what happened and what John White found when he went back, which was an empty fort. But archaeologists have since begun to get on this case. Okay, what are we learning now? Like, archaeologists have been doing this for a long time, right? It just still seems to be such a mystery. Well, one of the big mysteries is where was the lost colony in the first place? Where was their fort? And yeah, you're right. Archaeologists have been digging on Roanoke Island, where we know they originally settled, for more than 100 years. They have found very little. The only thing they found was the remains of a scientific laboratory that was set up during that first effort that I mentioned where the 100 men were living there. Uh, But there has been no archaeological evidence of the lost colonists of this this, second big colony that settled. So 
So we don't even really know where they began, much less where they ended up. But there are clues. And those are, there are two clues. One, John White said, the colonists uh, told me, when I went back to England, they said, you know, we might move 50 miles inland. But when he got back to uh, Roanoke Island three years later in 1590, uh, he also found a, a post, and on it was carved the word Croatan. Now, Croatan is an island 50 miles south of Roanoke. So we have two clues that they could have gone 50 miles inland uh, into the interior, or they might have gone 50 miles south. And that's when I got involved because there were two archaeology teams that decided they were going to actually dig in those places for the first time and see if they could find archaeological evidence that the colonists moved to these places. Now, Andrew, does this really speak to us in terms of, we just love a good mystery because it seems like we just want to answer everything out there these days, right? Do you remember the <laughs> first time you heard the story and were you captured right away? Are you kidding? Gosh, I was probably three or four years old. I grew up uh, in Virginia, not far from the coast of North Carolina. And there's a an outdoor drama that has been playing for, oh gosh, more than 75 years at the very site uh, on Roanoke Island, where we believe the fort was. And uh, I, I went to this every year. That's what, what we did. We'd go to the beach, and then at night you'd go and you'd watch this three-hour drama about the lost colony. And at the end, uh, well, they march off into the woods, and then you leave the theater, and you march through the woods on your way to the parking lot. So, yeah, it had a big impact on me because uh, it was something that still, despite all of the science, despite all of the, the historical efforts, there were still no firm clues as to what happened. And that's what began to change in the past 10 years. That's what got me interested, because to find physical evidence that shows where they went uh, could finally help us to solve the mystery. And do you think that we will eventually solve this mystery? Well, there were some fascinating finds, which I go into in my book, The Secret Token. Uh, this site 50 miles inland, Site X, they found pottery, which clearly was made in England and possibly at the time that the lost oh. colonists were alive. So it could be that, uh, and it was also found in the context of an Indian village. So clearly, if you're an English colonist and, and your guy who's gone to get supplies is late, you need food. So what are you going to do? Well, you know, if I was out of food, I'm going to go over to my neighbors and say, hey, can I mow your lawn You know, if you make me lunch? Right, ask And for help. inevitably, this is what happened, right? Uh, they went to the people who knew how to survive, and those were the indigenous people who had been there for for thousands of years. So almost inevitably, uh, the colonists would have become indigenous people. They would have joined with these Indian tribes, and they would have learned how to live and survive. So the question is, where did that happen, and how did that happen? And I think that's where archaeology can really help us, and can really shed light on the way these two cultures that were so different came together in a way that uh, was not violent at first. I mean, the colonists probably were uh, probably joined pretty peacefully with mm -hmm. uh, with these indigenous people. Um, there was serious problems with the first expedition, a lot of violence between the indigenous folks and, uh, and the English at first. But the point here is that uh, we, we tend to think of the English arriving and uh, you know, pushing the Indians out of the way, but ironically, it was inevitably the indigenous people, the first peoples uh, of America, who uh, helped these colonists learn how to survive and right. prosper and, and taught them their languages. Andrew, this is why people need to check out your book. Uh, thank you so much for being with us this morning. I've really enjoyed chatting. That's Andrew Lawler, author of The Secret Token, Myth, Obsession, and the Search for the Lost Colony of Roanoke. Still fascinating after 400 years or so, right? Still fascinating after all this time. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with our Scott Shots this morning and listen. I have heard some gross airplane stories, and maybe you've got one that can top this, but I highly doubt it. Good morning, Scott. Hi, how are you? 
Well, I'm not as good after hearing and just every time I see this story, I get grossed out. Yeah, and I'm sorry to to address this at such an early point in the morning, but it's gonna it's, it's out there. Be done. So a lot of people are gonna see this. Yeah, everyone has their own sort of story about, oh my gosh, I took this plane and it was the worst experience because of this. But uh, this this story is in headlines this morning because a couple got on an airplane to travel. They're going from uh, Las Vegas to Montreal and the full flight, as they often are, got back to their seat. They were in row 32 and discovered that someone on the previous flight had gotten a little airsick and uh, may have lost. Not may have. They did. threw up all over these <laughs> seats. Look, I'm, try, I'm trying to present it in like a sort of nice and like There's palatable no wrapping way. this one up. Sure. There's they, no wrapping this they up. They threw up all over the seats. There's vomit on the seat in front of them. There's vomit on the seat belt. There's like vomit everywhere. And uh, talked to a flight attendant and said, hey, we can't be expected to sit in, sit in this vomit for this like five hour flight. The seat was still wet. Yeah. Like they, so they had tried to clean it up, but obviously there's not enough time with the turnaround. Right these flights and they were like we we can't sit here yeah and and it's a full flight and the and the flight attendant said like look there's nothing we can do there's nothing you just, you have to there's no there's no option here uh, a woman who actually was sitting behind these passengers in row 33 she's given a bunch of interviews here here's what she said about the situation you know there's been an incident uh, that's why we put the coffee grounds and sprayed some perfume she finally came back with two blankets for each person. So six blankets and lots of vomit bags and a package of wet wipes and said, that's the best we can do. So basically they like laid blankets down over the seats and just kind of had to try to sit there for the whole flight. Four hours, by the way, this is because it's Las Vegas to Montreal. So four, almost four and a half hours. Yeah. But honestly, before it even happened, Simi, the pilot came back and asked them to get off the plane because it was like, you're being rude to the flight attendant and I'm sorry, you can't stay on this airplane. And it was like, we're not being rude. They're asking us to sit and vomit here. Like there's vomit everywhere. And the woman sitting behind who kind of overheard all this that you just played the clip from there. Yeah. She says... There was nothing rude here. No. They were objecting just like as any normal person would to being asked to sit in vomit and couldn't believe that they were being asked to get off the plane. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty awful. bad. It's pretty ridiculous. So Air Canada is apparently on top of it. They've reached out. Oh, you think, you know, no, if they were on top of it, this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> I mean, they're on top of the making good about this. I mean, it happened because, you know, like th- things do happen. This is what happens when you cram 100 people into a little tube and send them up into the air and give them alcohol and, you know, rehydrated food and all sorts of stuff. Th- things like this happen, but we've just made it so like gradually worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse that there isn't time to clean it up and there well, isn't yes. an extra seat and there isn't all of the things that would provide a little grace in a situation like this. Like I did have sympathy for the staff here too because what are they supposed to do? Right. That's what I mean. Right? Like they can't get a steam cleaner in for that little amount of time that they have to turn because literally people, they're landing the plane and they're offloading people and that's when they're cleaning the plane because then more people are about to get exactly, on the plane. Exactly, yeah. But at some point, Scott... You would like to think that common sense would prevail and somebody would make kind of the executive decision to say, we can't ask people to do this. No, and tell them before they get on the plane, here's your credit. We're going to take care of all of this for you. Like, hey, go spend another night in a hotel. Like, I'm really sorry. Like, there has to be something you can do. And if you explain to people, this is why we're doing it, because we don't want you to sit in these vomit covered seats. Yeah, yeah. I think people would understand. Have you had a bad flying experience? Oh, Geez, not like that. Yeah. I feel like that's the gold standard. That and the other airplane, which shall go nameless, the yes. one that recently, the biohazard airplane. The Delta one, yeah. Yeah, that, that, the, there's nothing that holds to that standard. I agree. But there are still, I mean, remember when flying used to be like a fun, like classy thing to do? Like you would get dressed up and you could like have a smoke mm. on the airplane. <laughs> Not no. that that was classy, but it was like, it used to be this thing that it was like, hey, you're traveling. You're go- Where are you going? No, people now get it's dressed up. cramming as yes. many people as possible to get from A to B. Yeah. And people, we ha- like everyone has lowered the standard. People get on the airplane in their pajamas and stuff. You know, it's just, it's that. like, it's people like the dress. 
their feet up on the. I've I've definitely knocked people's foot off that before. The worst. Like, don't even think about doing that if I'm sitting here. Yes. Uh, people with their hair where it shouldn't be. Like, I we would love to hear people's horror stories if you've had one of these. Obviously, not to that standard, perhaps. But what is it? Let us know. You can do Scott at cknw.com. You can email me, Simi at cknw.com, because we're going to share some of those coming up on the show this morning. Scott, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. As you just heard in the news, we are, of course, waiting to find out what the Bank of Canada is going to announce this morning with their interest rate decision. That coming right around 7 a.m., so a little over 20 minutes from now. But in the meantime, that's what we're going to talk to Rob Shaw about, political correspondent from Czech News, because this is also very much on the minds of the provincial government these days. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Simi. How are you doing? I am good. Thank you. So th- so David Eby is no longer the only premier saying to the Bank of Canada, hey, please don't do this. No, our premier uh, made quite a populist move by writing that letter last week to the governor of the Bank of uh, Canada, Tiff Macklem, saying, stop, stop it with the rate hikes. We've seen enough. Ten hikes since March of 2022. Uh, you heard in the newscast, they're the highest now uh, rate at 5% since 2001. So he wrote this letter. No premier has done that before. The only other politician to write to the governor of the Bank of Canada is Pierre Polyev, the federal conservative leader, and he wanted him to quit. Uh, But a couple other premiers have since joined, and that is Ontario uh, Premier Doug Ford and Newfoundland's premier as well. And so this kind of trio is now politically pressuring the governor to not raise rates and we'll find out at seven o'clock if he does they all have kind of the same argument although you know doug ford uh, he's his message is a little bit sharper than eb's where he he said and this is quote uh, a message to the bank of canada enough is enough you're trying to kill the economy okay you yeah that's personally a bit more. Respo- <laughs> you're personally responsible for creating inflation so you know he's going on to say people are losing their homes and that's on the bank's um shoulders so our premier didn't go that far he did say it's hurting people and he did say that his housing plans to build more units are imperiled by these rate hikes because the developers and are having trouble with their financing so Three different premiers, one from the New Democratic Party in BC, one from progressive conservatives in Ontario, and then the liberals in Newfoundland. So all across the spectrum coming together to take a couple swings at the Bank of Canada because it's an easy target for people's anger right now. No kidding. Have you ever recalled something like this happening before? No. uh, Well, you know, we don't often uh, care about the Bank of Canada. And and, uh, it's not something that politicians have taken on to this extent it is independent it's nonpartisan. you know someone equated it to writing the supreme court of canada and demanding that they do a certain thing which i think premier david eby as a lawyer and former attorney general would say is is inappropriate but uh they doesn't seem to have the same problem writing um you know the bank of canada and look like those letters they went straight into the garbage can. They're they're not. Um, the, the bank is insulated from feeling pressure from premiers and prime ministers. It takes in data. It takes in you know kind of looking at things. But the data it's looking at uh, is the uh, you know economic data. So it's kind of stuck between seeing inflation at and around kind of 3%, depending on which sort of core measures you're looking at, three and a half, four percent 4% range. It wants it to get down to two, but then it's also looking at the number of jobs that, that uh, the country lost. There were 6,400 in July. The unemployment rate is up. There's slower than expected uh, gross domestic product growth. And so it's, people are saying, well, are we seeing the impacts of it? Are we seeing the kind of slowdown of the economy? And should we pause? Whether the premier's right and say, hey, uh, quit it is is a completely different. You know, I would have expected John Horgan to write uh, the governor of the Bank of Canada. Yeah. I was a little surprised that David Eby did it. But uh, he's there's still a bunch of those new Democrats who uh, work in and around him who like to try and play that populist touch and uh, they're trying to put it on this premier too. There's also absolutely no indication that the Bank of Canada will take this into consideration. No, no, they're, they're not going to do that. I mean, right. the premier by by his own <laughs> by his own admission said if the governor of the Bank of Canada even reads my letter and for one second, one second at any point in his deliberation thinks oh, about that letter, then I've done my job. 
That's that's all he wanted was just he's just throwing up. He's shooting a flare into the sky and hoping that the the governor sees it. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of I don't think that the bank is insulated from the larger public unhappiness and sentiment and anger that exists out there. But it, its mandate is to bring inflation down to the level that it thinks that it needs to be at. And it's going to keep on doing it. Ironically, the uh, inflationary numbers that we saw most recently from StatsCan showed that one of the biggest drivers, the biggest driver of inflation right now is the interest rate hikes and the financial impact they're having on people's ability to pay their mortgage and their household goods. And so we've got this twisted kind of chicken and egg thing going on now where the tool that's supposed to bring down inflation is actually increasing inflation yeah. and the two have become commingled and that's you know you're gonna have to ha- have on some sort of professor emeritus economist to explain that uh you know nature what, to you can't you, do that I, too what we can't get no you to do that no too? no my phd in economics is uh I, to use the new letter grade system i believe it is uh emerging <laughs> I'm, I'm in the emerging area of economics so that was a fantastic segue rob shaw political correspondent of czech news also about heading back to school this week and i thought it interesting rob that you know the education minister had a lot to say yesterday but didn't really hear a lot that parents go, oh, okay, that sounds good. I think parents would be kind of disappointed by that. Yeah, there was a lot of discussion, but there wasn't a lot of solutions uh, to the huge problems that are facing the education system right now. So is there a teacher shortage? According to the education minister, yes, there is, which is what the teachers union says as well. Do we know how many teachers are short? Nope. Do we know how many uncertified teachers in, especially in rural areas, people who aren't qualified, but get called in because they're enthusiastic to fill in when there are no teachers. Uh, how many of those are being used? Nope. Um, so the education minister Russian is seeing yesterday saying, you know, they're trying, but they don't have a lot of answers there. Uh, enrollment is going way up. We talked about it yesterday. Schools are crammed. Surrey's bringing in hundreds of more portables. Uh, is that an issue? Absolutely. Is there a solution to it? Well, no, uh, you know, so there wasn't much from the education minister there other than they're trying to build schools, they're trying to do more urban schools, they're trying to do, um, they're trying to get land in developments before they're developed so that the schools and the scramble afterwards to secure at a higher price and then it's built for when people need it, which I think is the right idea, but they're multi-year uh, things down the road. So those are issues. Then the report card issue, the getting rid of letter yes. grades for, for up to grade nine. A doubling down from the minister saying, um, you know, yeah, people are going to need to adjust to this, but this is what we're doing. And this is what people say is better, helps gauge people's um, young kids' uh, learning rate uh, in a deeper way. And even though people indicated very strongly in government survey, teachers, students, uh, parents, they don't want this. Government's going to do it anyways. And and in the education minister's words, we're just going to need a little time to adjust to these new developing emerging proficient metrics. So not no movement from the government on any of these issues, kind of acknowledgements that they exist. But if you were looking for solutions on the near horizon to your child being crammed into a portable and looking at portables for the rest of their academic K to 12 career, that was not forthcoming uh, yesterday from the minister. Yeah, I know. I found this interesting because I thought they would have kind of had a plan to address all this at the beginning of the school year when they know all these questions are going to be coming, but there didn't really seem to be that. The plan was to send out, according to my email box, eight uh, email messages uh, celebrating different schools that were opening across the province, one for some oh, that was the plan. of the province. That was the plan. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think this is going to be a budgetary issue for the government in February. They need to put a ton of money behind their school projects uh, in order to get this thing going. And that's not something the minister can announce on her own at the start of school. But it would have been nice to have a, even a roadmap of that other than just an acknowledgement of, yeah, there are problems all over the system and uh, we're working on it, but without a clear idea of how. Uh, the numbers are so... There's number, I, the government gave me some numbers on enrollment yesterday after you and I uh, chatted about it. And we have not seen this level of enrollment increasing in the school system since the late 1990s. It kind of kind of ended at 2000, 2001, really? 1999. Was, and then we entered a period of declining enrollment until around 2017. 
and then it's gone slowly sort of back up and increasingly in different areas and um, higher than others. So we, you know, we remember those times when school districts sold off properties and closed schools and consolidated yeah. schools. And, and this is the, the distant result of that is that you know, six years after the enrollment starts uh, increasing, it, uh, we are struggling to keep up. But the New Democrats knew that. They made promises about this. That it's not like they didn't say they were going to get rid of portables and they were going to dramatically increase education funding. So there's not a lot of excuses now to ask six years in why uh, that has not occurred to keep up with demand. Right. So you feel, though, that this is something that is going to be on the agenda. And we're heading into an election year, right? So this is going to be mm. on the agenda in the spring. It's, well, I mean, there. The budget for next year in an election year is going to be so fantastical and incredible and filled with so <laughs> and much magical money. And oh, <laughs> it's just—it's going to be proficient in every way. Uh, and so, yeah, they'll have a gigantic plan for school spending and health spending and every other spending you can possibly see. But it's going to take time to make up for the falling behind, which is where we still are now six years after the NDP said they were going to pick things up. so hmm. Okay, and no budging on the letter grades, as you mentioned there. Did that surprise you a little bit? No, I think, you know, it, the NDP has the BCTF behind it on the letter grades issue, and the, the teachers' union is firmly in the, in the uh, camp of that this is a positive move. There are some academics that back this up too, so I think it feels like it is in the right on this, and it just kind of has to push it through. It is going to face political opposition. BCU United came out yesterday and said, you know what, vote for us. We win the election. You kids get letter grades back. Bada bing, bada boom. That's an easy kind of thing for people. Like, I'm not sure you're going to cast your vote on an issue like that, but it's an easy thing for the opposition to kind of gain a little bit of of traction on in the back to school time and cut into people's lives and get through that fog that most people have when they don't even know the opposition exists. So that was a gift to them by the NDP. I don't know why they're they're fighting this fight as hard as they are this year, given everything else. Um, but nothing from the education minister yesterday that they're thinking of slowing or backing down on it uh, at all. It is full steam ahead on on that. All right, interesting stuff. Gives us something to talk about. Rob, thank you. Okay, take care. This is mornings with Simi. Right now, we're going to talk about you know companies really pushing the envelope when it comes to doing things differently. For instance, think about this for a second. An environmentally friendly refinery. Is such a thing even possible? I know to a lot of people that might feel like an oxymoron maybe, but there are people out there who work on something like this. In fact, right here in Western Canada, they're working on this and they think it's very possible to capture the carbon from something like that. And what about doing something with all the fallen and decaying timber that we have in our forests? I mean, deadwood, that is also these days a wildfire hazard, isn't it? So could we do something about that? On both of these counts, apparently, there might be. Ian McGregor is with us now, the executive chair of a company called Hydrogen Naturally. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. This is sounds like fun. It does sound like fun, doesn't it? Now, this, these things that we're talking about also sound a bit like fairy tales, but is it possible to capture the carbon from things like decaying timber? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, maybe I'll go on a, a bit of a ramble before I start. So I, I built something called the, the Sturgeon Refinery uh, up by Edmonton in Alberta, and it's the first refinery in the world that captures the significant amounts of hydrogen or uh, carbon dioxide that are typically vented in the refining process. So it, it takes, you know, the, the kind of oil we have in Alberta, makes it into uh, diesel fuel. We capture the carbon. And in that refinery, uh, we capture about 4,000 tons a day of CO2. So that's that's a lot. And we built a system which is the world's largest operational system for sequestering that CO2. And so we take it to central Alberta and put it underground safely and permanently. So I think you can do the same thing that we did in the oil refinery with something I'm calling a wood refinery now. And we take low-value wood fiber, so it doesn't matter where it comes from. It's the lowest-value stuff that's typically sometimes left behind or sometimes made into pulp or you know, things like that. And we can use that as the feedstock for a wood refinery and we can make hydrogen and we can put the hydrogen in other places to decarbonize things and we can sequester the CO2. So, you know, we've done all of this before. This isn't something that we're dreaming up and have a big technology risk. It's, It's things that we've done before. Okay. So are we in the process though of doing it again? 
Yeah, we are. Yeah, no, we're building, you know, we're, we're, we're getting ready to build one of these things near Edmonton. And the reason we have to do it there is that's really the only place in Canada where there's an operational carbon sequestration system that, that you can get into and, and sequester the CO2 in the process. So we take the, the low-value wood fiber and we make that into hydrogen and uh, sort of a derivative product of that is carbon dioxide, but we make it in a form that's easy and cheap to sequester. So we can do this so it's economic. So you talk about the low-value wood there. A lot of this is the stuff that gets left on the floor, right? Like we're talking about cleaning up forest floors these days because of all the wildfires. Could this help with that? Yeah, I mean, we've even invented it since all the fires started. I think we've invented a new term for it. It's called high-hazard wood waste. And so people are thinking, you know, the reason that these fires are so severe now is because we've been so successful in fighting them in the past, and there's a whole bunch of fuel on the floor of the forest. And when that gets, you know, when that gets going, it's really hard to put it out and deal with it now. And the fires are more severe. So that's all sitting around. And, and we think, you know, we you can't get to all of it because it's some of its very remote locations. But you can get to stuff that's close to people. And that's the stuff that's really creating a lot of problems for us lately. Okay, so you have to get the product, though, right? Is that asking forestry companies to say, hey, start thinking about this wood? Yeah, so, you know, I, I should say, you know, my partner in doing this, so I have a company called Northwest Capital, and we do strange stuff like this, and we're partnering up with Brian Fair, and, and so Brian Fair is a sort of legend in the BC forestry industry. Brian knows trees, and we know pipes, and so it's a, a pretty good partnership, and our plan really is to is to try and do something uh, it, I'll, I'll give the story that you know I want to tell you is when I started I've been hearing for my whole life I'm an old guy so I'm you know 74 years old now from through my life I've been hearing about diversification in Alberta everybody's talking about it all the time and I just got sick of hearing people talk about it and I decided I'm going to do something and that's where the refinery and the carbon sequestration system came from and I keep hearing the same things about reconciliation and so I've been hearing that for my whole life and I'm just getting sick of it and I'm going to do something and Brian feels the same way so we're going to go to places where the indigenous people are the tenure owners for the forest. We're going to work with them to build pellet making operations there. And then we're going to bring the pellets to a, a big central location, a centralized location and near Edmonton where we can process this stuff and sequester the CO2. And, and that's the way you think that the fastest way of doing things these days. You know, none of these things are fast. They have to be large scale, but we have to, you know, we've, we spend so much of the climate change agenda on new technology, and new technology takes decades to implement. And what we want to do is work at scale right now. All of them take a long time. Like, it'll take us five years to build this plant. But when we build it, it will be a very large system. We're talking about taking, you know, 4 million tons of CO2 a year out of the air. The trees take it out of the air and we sequester that CO2. So we think 4 million tons a year, that's a lot. That's as big as anywhere in the world. And we think we can build these things in other places. But Ian, I guess what you're also saying here, though, is that some of the answers in solving these issues around climate change are already with us. We just have to think differently. Absolutely. We have to use what we know how to do because we want to make a difference. We want to do it now and we want to do it at large scale. And what that means is we don't have time to invent things. We have to do things that we know how to do. And we do know how to do this. This is exactly what we did. with the, It's the same processes fundamentally that we used in the oil refinery. Okay. So you're saying you're making progress on this? Oh, yeah. We're having a riot. It's a lot of fun, you know. And, and you, <laughs> we're, you know, we've got a team of about 10 people. We've been working on it for a couple of years now. And we're, you know, we're starting to gear up and do the engineering. We are working. Uh, uh, we have a site. We, we can't tell anybody what it is yet, but we think we've got a site now to place the thing. And, uh, you know, we're, we're negotiating to what to do with the hydrogen. We make a lot of hydrogen. So it's about 160,000 tons a year of hydrogen that comes out of it ultimately. And so we have to have a place to put that hydrogen, and we're working with the potential off-takers for it now. And then we have to deal with the CO2, and we're working with that, too. Uh, it's good to hear that like things are being done. I look forward to hearing about the progress. Ian, thank you. Okay, thanks for having me. I really appreciate this. Anytime. That's Ian McGregor, Executive Chair of Hydrogen Naturally. They are working to turn low-value wood, you know, decaying timber, stuff lying around at the bottom of the forest there, into more high-value wood. 
And that way they can clear it off the forest floor. It won't be such a risk for a wildfire situation, but they would also capture the carbon uh, that is a result of that decaying wood and turning it into something valuable too. Uh, So it is fascinating to see this new technology being used like this. This is Mornings with Simi. This has happened to me twice recently where you have something like an appliance that needs a little fix, right? Just a little fix. But the little fix is so hard to get done. And then it's like expensive. So they tell you, oh, you know what? It's just cheaper to get it brand new. I hate that. You want to buy something that is fixable. It's the same thing these days with furniture. Now, vintage furniture is exceptionally durable, But can we say the same thing about the furniture we're buying today? What about that last table that you bought or the last couch that you bought? Is somebody 50 years from now going to look at that in a a vintage furniture store and go, what a great buy? Uh, Probably not. Problem is, this is the way the whole furniture industry is designing things. So joining us now to talk about this is Coco Ree Lemery, who's a professor of industrial and furniture design at Purdue University and creative director of Studio Colac at LLC. Uh, Coco, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I feel like we can't win these days when it comes to furniture. This must be frustrating for you, too. I mean, absolutely, especially as a designer, you really want to work and make beautiful items that people keep forever. And that's sadly just not the climate that we're, you know, currently operating in. So as an industrial furniture designer, then Coco, what are companies asking you to do? So I mainly do furniture design. Um, And so when you're doing that, that can be everything from you're specking out, you know, desks, tables, chairs, lamps whatnot, all in the same category. You work on a seasonal basis. So you launch a new products, collections every season. And those seasons adapt and change with the trends, really follow kind of what people are interested in in their home. And those trends change really fast. So you're kind of always having to keep up with what, what is currently popular and in demand. So nobody's buying classic pieces. They're buying stuff that looks good on Instagram right now. Absolutely. Yes. So when you design, how do you design for that then? So you're designing with a lot of um, different materials. Most of the time you're focused on what materials are the most cost effective. So when you look at, I mean, to your point, when you're talking about vintage furniture versus furniture of today, you know, even from, you know, the material quality has gone down quite a bit. Right. And so as a designer, the materials that I'm working with today or specking out today are very different than they were, you know, early on. Oh, and so you're if you even design something that looks like is nice and classic and you feel timeless, what do companies say to you? Well, it really is about margin ultimately. Right. So it's kind of how does that fit into the margin? What is the customer that we're after and what are they looking for? Does it make sense? Um, and a lot of the times if you're using more expensive materials, that kind of immediately gets mixed from the offering for customers. So we are the worst enemy. We're our own worst enemy on this kind of stuff. I mean, yes and no. There are things that there's been a lot of innovation in furniture that has kind of led to its degradation. And I think that that's important. Right. Um, prior to the 1950s, you would buy furniture by placing an order and it would be delivered weeks and weeks later. You know, 1956, we've got flat pack it, furniture is introduced by one of the first people at Ikea. And that, while a lot of people like like snub their nose at Ikea, also created a really global market where you're able to ship things um, and then the customers assembling them. It also, in a positive note, right, it, it opens up the door to people getting access to maybe things that they wouldn't have had access to before, Right. There's, there's good and bad here. I see what you're saying, but I feel like today there's a little bit more of an appetite, Coco, for people to buy things that are going to last. Yes, absolutely. And you can see that particularly, you know, after World War II, about 60% of furniture was coming out of uh, North Carolina, specifically that high point area. And that's because there's abundant timber there and there's the Southern railway system is there. You know, and then you've got the U.S.-China agreement that signed in 1999, and you see like half of those jobs leave. But since the pandemic, um, you've seen a resurgence in people buying furniture for their home. 
and really looking at what is higher quality. And because of that, even these factories in North Carolina have really seen an uptick in customization and serving a market that is looking for something that um, is a little bit higher quality. Okay, so if I want to buy something that I think, okay, this is going to last, what should I look for in terms of the design? Well, the more that it disassembles, the more that you have to assemble it, the worse off it is. So kind of the general rule of thumb is the more fully assembled the object is, the longer it's going to last, right? Um, And I feel like people aren't really necessarily aware that they can commission furniture designers to this day, really get something that's customizable. And it's really not that much more than going to, say, like a crate and barrel and buying something there. Um, So it really would be about can you shop locally? Can you buy the piece fully assembled? Um, And sort of minimizing the amount of Shopping online, I think, is also a big part of that. Oh, boy. Don't even get me started on shopping online. You're talking like the Wayfairs (laughs) of the world, right? Absolutely, yeah. And that's what everybody wants because they want, I guess they need something new, but maybe our attitudes are changing about that. I mean, there is a lot of hope that the attitudes in general are shifting to a place of people are maybe looking for things that are American-made, maybe a little bit more artisanal. Maybe they're wanting something that is, more of a custom commission piece. Like I just did a commission piece that, you know, people wanted to integrate their monitors or they want to hide their cords on their desk. And so you can't find that kind of stuff on the market. So what's the best way to do that? It's going to be working with someone in a more intimate level. That's good advice. That's exactly what I'm going to do next time I need a new piece of furniture. Coco, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That is Coco Ree Lemery, who's a professor of industrial and furniture design at Purdue University, talking about our habit of, yeah, you know, buying cheap furniture, ordering online because everybody wants to have the latest looks. But boy, does that ever, you know, contribute to stuff not lasting out there. Wouldn't you rather have something that lasts a long time rather than something that just lasts a couple of years before it breaks? This is Mornings with Simi. Got a little excited listening to the news there, hearing John Strait tell us about Team Canada uh, playing in the FIBA, the basketball, you know, tournament there. Canada has moved on to the semifinals of the FIBA World Cup. Uh, they knocked off Slovenia 100 to 89. That happening just a few minutes ago. Shea Gilgis Alexander, 31 points. RJ Barrett, 24 points. Uh, and you know what's great about that? Slovenia, Luka. Luka Doncic, that was the big star of the Slovenian team, and Canada beat them, beat him. And we move on to play Serbia. That's awesome. What a great job Team Canada is doing over there. That bodes well, let's hope, knock wood, for the Olympics, right? Well, right now we're also going to talk about volcanoes. Because when we think of volcanoes that are kind of rumbling, maybe active, we don't generally think about volcanoes that are you know close to home. But actually, we should. There is one that we should think about. Researchers have been taking a good look at Mount Meager because there are some signs of life there. So is this something that we need to be concerned about? Dr. Glenn Williams-Jones is a professor and co-director of Simon Fraser University's Center for Natural Hazards Research and is part of the team that is taking a closer look at Mount Meager. We had a chance to ask him all about it. Well, thanks so much for joining us to talk about that this morning. First off, can you? where is Mount Meager? So Mount Meager is uh, one of the Canadian active volcanoes, and it's uh, just up uh, northwest of Pemberton, if you follow the um, upper Lillooet River, uh, up through Pemberton Meadows. Okay, so so about 160 kilometers north of here. It's pretty close then to us. How active of a volcano is this? So uh, it is quite an active volcano. Uh, We've currently got signs of volcanic gases Uh, albeit low temperature, about 90 degrees Celsius, that have melted their way through the ice, and you can see these on the surface. Um, But it's not like we think about in Hawaii. We don't have lava spewing out. It's not sending off earthquakes. So it's on the active side, it's quite quiet right now. Okay, but is there more activity recently? Um, It's one of these things where we're actually not that sure. Um, because we still need to expand our monitoring system. Um, But what we have been seeing since about 2016 is the formation of these incredible uh, caves uh, in the glacier formed by by volcanic gases. Um, But we actually think that this is signs of 
sort of a long period of, uh, of lo very low level activity. And we're seeing it because of the changing climate and the thinning glaciers. Right. But when you say we have to expand our monitoring, does that mean that we don't do a good enough job? Because you mentioned Hawaii, and one of the things they do there is monitor their volcanoes. Absolutely. And, and we do not do a good enough job in Canada of monitoring our volcanoes. Um, and in part, it's because we haven't had that same um, high level of activity, you know, eruptions on Kilauea, or Mount St. Helens or, or what have you. So that makes it challenging. Um, and also most of the Canadian volcanoes are quite remote, which means it's very challenging to, to access them. But um, how would we, we know how active they are if we're not monitoring them properly? That's the big question. Um, and so we start, the, the first big you know, approach to do this is in fact to use satellites. Uh, and so satellites are a tool that uh, Natural Resources Canada and the Geological Survey are starting to develop a program to try to see any signs that the uh, the volcanoes might be moving, uh, might be inflating if there's new magma coming in. But that's something that is, is developing. Um, really what we need if we're going to be able to respond, if things were start to, to sort of ramp up, uh, would be much more instruments uh, on the ground. Uh, so that you can have the real-time uh, connectivity. So theoretically, is it more realistic to expect a higher level of activity from the volcanoes that we have here in Canada? Because when you think about the volcanoes that we see in other parts of the Pacific Rim, that ring of fire, they're more active. Why wouldn't ours be? Yeah, um, and ours are active. It's just on a different time scale. So especially if you, if you go further north, uh, say into the area around uh, Smithers uh, Terrace, there's actually geologically many, many, many uh, volcanoes uh, that have erupted over, you know, rel geologically recent time. Um, so we, we should be expecting uh, volcanic uh, activity at some point. It's a matter of when. And you know, it goes into the subtleties of, of the geology of how plate tectonics is interacting, why the volcanoes here in Canada are quieter than, say, the volcanoes down in, in the Cascades in, in the central U.S., like in Oregon and, and Washington. But if we're not looking effectively, then we're not going to see those very subtle signals of change. And that's what we want to be looking for at all times. Okay, so then when we're talking about Mount Meager here, what are the questions that you have about the activity that we're seeing there? So one of the things we for Mount Meager that we really wanted to understand is when we saw these uh, ice caves sort of reform in, in 2016, um, was this signs of increased activity? Was the volcano warming up or was it in fact um, this interaction with climate? Um, and so really it is the, the thinning glaciers that have allowed now the, uh, the gases to, to melt their way through. But then the opportunity was, well, what can we find out? Um, you know, the, the actual source for these gases are underneath the glacier. So can we go in and try to make measurements of the temperature, uh, measurements of the composition of those volcanic gases? Because those subtle changes in the chemistry can tell us, oh, things are changing deep below in, in the guts of the volcano. Um, and then also the big thing with Mount Meager is there's, it's a source of you know, active landslides. So the largest landslide in Canadian history uh, happened at Mount Meager in, in 2010. So what's the interplay between volcanic activity and instability of, of the volcano and landslides? So these questions then, are we in the process of answering them? We're trying to tackle. Um, this is the beauty of science. We, we sort of come up with one answer and then it raises a whole bunch more questions. Uh, but these are uh, are questions and projects that we're we're trying to to do. So, in the case of the chemistry, uh, because of this team of of expert cave, um, uh, basically cave rescue people, we were able to go in. They were um, underneath the ice and make the first time these these measurements of, of the chemistry and the temperature. Uh, so that's a start. It's a it's a baseline information. But, you know, it's not like Hawaii. I, I spent a year and a half in Hawaii before coming back to Canada. And there you could walk right up to the volcano yeah. and, and 
happily make all sorts of measurements. It's much trickier here at, at uh, Mount Meager or Mount Garibaldi or, or, or other volcanoes. You have to helicopter in. Uh, the access is, is very challenging. And, and these are ones in the low mainland. So, you know, long story, we are getting there a bit at a time. And, and you know, from a, an academic scientific perspective, it means there's so many more questions that are really interesting that we need to understand and, and find out about these volcanoes. Oh, we have a lot of work to do. Thanks for joining us this morning to talk about it. It was my pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of questions are being asked right now about report cards. Now that kids all the way up to grade nine will no longer be getting letter grades in BC. And this is a wave of kind of new thinking when it comes to education and curriculum about how it's beneficial to kids to not necessarily get letter grades. But it's one of many trends in education. And that's something we're going to talk to our Scott Shantz about this morning. Scott, I'm so glad you've been looking into this because I feel like parents are asking a lot of questions. But just like everything else, education is also subject to things that are trendy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's one of these things that in so many ways kind of runs parallel to whatever else is happening in yes. in society. And there's always, especially at this time of your conversations around, oh, you, your child got this teacher. So that means your class is going to be really artsy or your child got this teacher and she's really stern. And maybe this school, like I know when I lived in East Van, there was like this certain catchment that everybody wanted to be in because it meant you got to go to that school where they do this totally different so style of learning, so true. you know, and it's like, what's the bar? Is there a bar anymore? Or do we just like, it's, it's totally up to the teachers. Well, and it's all, it's all fluid. Remember, I also remember 20 years ago, it was very trendy to go to quote traditional schools. Mm-hmm. Like what did that mean? Um, you know, there was, a, and I use this example all the time because it affected my kids, but not learning cursive. Oh, we don't need cursive. Well, now it turns out we do need cursive. So yeah, kids are subjected to this kind of stuff. Oh yeah. And it, it's rampant and it's It's everywhere. And uh, yeah, so I wanted to like know a little bit more about it. There's all sorts of things that are cut like AI. How's that going to affect the classroom, right? So I got in touch with Mona Gleason. She's the department head of educational studies at UBC, and she's also a historian of education and children in Canada. So she's been looking into this stuff uh, for a long time. And I sort of asked her, you know, to explain to me like, uh, or, or just to speak in general to this idea that like evolution evolves and curriculum evolves alongside our society. And here is what she had to say. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that, that classrooms reflect a number of forces um, and tensions and opportunities. Uh, they reflect, um, first of all, often what is sort of going on in the world and questions or challenges that are happening in the world and and um, really serious questions were, were and are reflected in school curriculum, in the way teachers are trained, in the way students are um, sort of, uh, you know, advised and, and um, curriculum pedagogy essentially is, is um, very reflective of what's going on in the world. I mean, the other part of it, though, is that, you know, there are public schooling systems do reflect the interests of, um, you know, government, of governing bodies. So, you know, um, pardon me, in Canada, of course, education is provincially um, mandated. So provinces will often have, um, you know, sort of their own kind of take on what priorities they want to see coming out of public education. Um, so, you know, society writ large has a great deal to do with priorities in schools. Those who govern schools have a great deal of say in, in what happens in schools. And I would say, um, you know, parents and families also have, have say in how schools and schooling unfolds. And I think that is the case probably more so now than it was in the past. I would argue. I would argue that over time we've seen an increase in um, a sensitivity to the the needs and the ideas and the the desires of family. One of the other things that I've seen and I've I've sort of heard about uh, a catchment for a particular school that does 
a, a different style of learning based on kids' interests. And then at other places, they mm-hmm. kind of follow like, um, you know, like, oh, you're in this grade because of this age. And, you know, sometimes they do like classrooms right. outdoors, which is a thing that like I talked to someone about last week. It feels really fluid, despite it being this yeah. sort of like institution that we've had forever. You're really hitting on what is um, quite a sort of a 21st century approach to schooling. Um, You know, the fact that schools do have, um, you know, they do, they do have rules, quote unquote. I mean, there is a provincial curriculum that, that, um, that, that school districts need to ensure is being followed or at least being satisfied. Um, There's also administrators who have, you know, some are, are um, very involved in, in, in how, classrooms operate and other administrators are not that involved in how classrooms operate. They, they trust their educators or their teachers to, to do their thing. There's also, you know, an increasing demand for, um, you know, sort of bespoke programs or choice programs, parents and families who want to um, see if there is a schooling approach that really resonates with their child who may have learning challenges or who may have a particular, you know, may be gifted in a particular area, all of that choice, all of those, what feels like kind of individualized programs, that's a fairly new-ish phenomenon. Now, okay, I'm going to ask you about something that I think everyone is like, what are we going to do with this? Talk about how AI is going to change learning and the classroom. Right. Oh, the chat GPT. Everyone right. is, everyone is it's freaking out about well, that. Well, are they? And, like, is you know, the, our schools well, freaking out over it? And I, When it first came out, you know, some, some months ago, there was a ripple, absolutely, across the, the systems of education and, and other systems. You know, what does this mean? Does this mean that people are just going to be able to type in a sentence and get a paper spewed out? It, it's a tool in the same way that Google is a tool. Now, it might be more sophisticated than Google, but it won't replace the student and teacher dynamic, it doesn't necessarily offer a, a platform for people to explore their own, like their, their creativity in, in terms of assignments, in terms of building courses, um, you know, from the educator's perspective. So I have, for example, in the courses that I teach at UBC, I have a little kind of, um, uh, section of my course outline that says, you know, chat GPT and other AI programs are just like any other source in the world. Um, you need to be critical. You need to approach it and understand it. Play, you need to play around with it and get to know it. But ultimately, it can't replace your own thoughts, your mm-hmm. own work, your own words. We'd be foolish to just stick our heads in the sand and say, oh, this is you know, too scary. Um, educators have, have risen to the, the challenge of incredible educational technologies. AI is, is, is just another, it's another interesting and intriguing kind of way to think about what kind of knowledge really matters to us as a community of people. What constitutes an educated person? Like those are the big questions that AI actually helps us to ask. Those are questions we need to be asking ourselves all the time. Because education is very dynamic. It doesn't, it doesn't stay in one place. What do we want our, um, our system to, to, to be accomplishing? That's Mona Gleason. She's the Department Head of Educational Studies at UBC and a historian in education and children in Canada. Simi, yes. what do we constitute as an educated person? That's a really interesting question. I, I, lo- I love the idea, though, that there are trends in education and that was, you know, sometimes we roll them, sometimes they hang around, sometimes they don't. Sure. And maybe that's how we need to view this whole report card experiment thing, although it's going to be hard on kids. So I get why that's a concern. I was also reading, you talked about ChatGPT. I read about an American university where the admissions team spent the entire summer, Scott, feeding information into ChatGPT to try to create example college application essays so that they could perhaps recognize what they're going to be receiving from wow. students in the in the year ahead. See, I, th- I think of that and I'm like, what a ridiculous waste of time. 
right? But they have to. They want to see what ChatGPT is going to create so if they can recognize the pattern. If they if they can see that somebody has applied to their school using ChatGPT, sure. they can be like, you know what? Lazy. We're not going. But, that student's out. But this thing isn't going away. It's going to be the norm. How about you find the kid who used ChatGPT to write the best essay and, and then think that how this is the person who's going to incorporate ChatGPT the best and be able to like adapt it to the learning the learning system? Because that's what we need to do. It's Maybe not going away. that's the future of the future of learning. Maybe that's the future. You're not quite there yet. You're doing like a back to the future thing. You're way ahead of everybody. I'm getting there because I need to invest, Simi. That's why. (laughs) Thank you for that, Scott. So interesting. If you're out of way in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. And we like to talk about mysteries here on the show. And one of the biggest on earth really has to do with what is at the bottom of the ocean. It remains so challenging to learn about, but that might be changing. Ocean journalist Laura Trithui has written a book called The Deepest Map. It's all about the race to map the seafloor by the year 2030. And she joins us now to talk about it. Laura, thank you for being here. No, thank you for having me. Well, why is there a race going on for this? Uh, Well, my book centers around this initiative called Seabed 2030, and they basically uh, made up the race themselves. Uh, They set 2030 as the deadline for when they'd like to complete the first global map of the seafloor. And at the time they kicked this off in 2017, we'd only mapped about 15% of the seafloor. And in the last six or so years that this race has been going on, they've managed to get that number up to just under 25%, but we're still a long way off. And we've never had this complete look at the shape of our own planet before. And so uh, why haven't we? Why haven't we had that before? When you think about it, we we know about Mars, we we obsess about the moon, we're going back to the moon. Why don't we know more about the, the ocean floor? Yeah, you know, I'm with you. I completely do not understand why we've mapped Mars and the moon and many other distant planets. And we still haven't mapped our own ocean. That question sort of kicked off the whole book. And the more I dug into it, I realized, I mean, mapping is just really hard to do. We have to do it with sound and sonar. So you actually have to be physically out there on a ship sending this ping down. So it's tough. It's tough. We map distant planets with lasers. So that's a lot easier. But there's also just like the politics of it, the expense of it. And we've just never been able to get a big collective push behind completing this this map for all of humanity. Okay, so we're more interested in outer space, it feels like, than we have been in the ocean floor. So do you feel like now that is changing with this kind of race? Uh, I hope so. I hope that we're getting more interested in the ocean floor. And, you know, I hope my book has something to do with that. There's incredible mysteries down there still to discover. I mean, Amelia Earhart's plane is down there. Um, one of the greatest mysteries of all time is down there, which is, you know, where did life begin? It started somewhere at a hydrothermal vent on the seafloor, and we still don't know where that is or how that happened. So, so yeah, I definitely hope it's changing. You mentioned one of my favorite mysteries of all time, and that is Amelia Earhart. I mean, that's, uh, and, and yet we seem to be obsessed with finding that one out, too. <laughs> yes, yes. When tragedies happen in the deep sea, um, as we all saw with the Titan submersible, uh, we, we tend to realize just how small we are and how big the ocean is. Um, the loss of the MH370, the Malaysian Airlines flight that went down in 2014, I believe, uh, you know, we're still looking for that. A whole airplane disappeared, and that just shows how big the ocean is and how small we are. Do you feel like has technology played a role in our lack of knowledge here too, just that it is so challenging, so difficult to get down there? Yeah, for sure. There's um, there's technological challenges, but we're also working on a lot of the ocean mappers that I interviewed. They put a lot of faith into automated mapping. So in the past, we've had to send out these big ships that take whole teams to operate and diesel to run and they go out for weeks or months at a time sort of pinging the seafloor and now there's a movement within this ocean mapping community to send out drones instead so um, you'll get kind of this small drone that runs on much less diesel has no crew on board but it's operated by someone back on land who does the mapping instead and they sort of cover off certain areas of the ocean floor but that sort of made me a little bit sad because I'm a bit of a, a romantic about ocean expeditions. I went on one for this book. 
And I just love the idea of humans being out there exploring the seafloor. And I was a bit sad that we'd give that roll up and hand it over to robots. Oh, that is sad when you put it that way. It is. So is there a particular <laughs> area that the race is focusing on? Uh, well, right now, a lot of the race is focused around coastlines and countries, just because it's always easier, easier to focus on sort of national priorities. So Canada, for instance, is focused heavily on the Arctic and the Northwest Passage, um, because those are national priorities. And it's the same thing with almost every country. What gets neglected in this race is the international seafloor. So about 50% of the ocean is international waters, and there's just very little incentive to, to map that. So to go back to your point about why it's so difficult to map the seafloor, a lot of it comes down to this international seafloor, where there's just no incentive really to finish the map. Oh, so you're saying there's still going to be gaps then? Oh, yes. I think that, I mean, I hate to bust FIBA 2030's bubble, but I'm not sure if we're going to complete that map in the next six and a half years. So we'll probably be working on it for quite some time. One person who runs a drone company actually said, you know, just call it FIBA 2090. Like, we're not going to get this done by 2030. <laughs> There's oh, that's so much more sad. left to do. Yeah, <laughs> it is. That's it sad. Is. What was it like for you to be out there watching this happen? Oh, I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, ocean mappers call this kind of mowing the lawn, where you just kind of work seafloor patches one strip at a time. And I live, love sitting there watching the pings come back and seeing new seafloor that had never been mapped or glimpsed before come up on the screen. So I spent nine days out on an ocean mapping cruise off California, and we only mapped about 4,000 square kilometers and about 426 of that uh, was totally new maps. So it just, it really showed just how big the ocean is and how hard it is to map. And what were the conditions like out there? They were rough. They were really rough. <laughs> That's why I was like so hesitant in asking because I thought, oh, that, if that, that would have been hard. Yeah. And I didn't even know if I got seasick when I got, went out on that ship. So I found out that I'm not particularly prone to seasickness, which is great as an ocean journalist. I can continue to do this work. But yeah, it was very rough and rough weather is a huge component of why ocean mapping is so difficult. Winds, waves, salt water, it's all really conspiring against ocean mappers who are trying to get this map done. So there's still a lot more work to do and are you going to continue to follow it? Will you be going out again? Oh yeah, absolutely. If anybody, one quest that never really got finished during this book was that I was trying my best to get on board a submersible. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, with really? the Titan accident that happened, yeah, a lot of people questioned me about that. But the Titan was really an outlier, and I'm still looking for a trip on board a submersible. So if anybody has one, I'm still ready to go down there. Well, you are brave, braver than me. So, Laura, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. That is Laura Drathiri. The book is called The Deepest Map, and it's about the race to map the ocean floor by 2030. A huge challenge there, as Laura just explained as well, but also, are they even going to get it all done because of all of those challenges too, right? We're still so much we don't know about the ocean floor. All right, when we come back, we are going to be talking to Mike Smith, but first we're going to get a check of your traffic coming up next.